Father, our prayer is that you would calm our hearts and clear our minds, that we would receive well your word today. Thank you, Father, for the great privilege of gathering in a peaceful community on a beautiful Sunday morning, gathering with our church family to sing and to hear the word, to pray together, to encourage one another, to see one another, and to know that we're not alone on this journey. And Father, most of all, to take our Bibles and to hear from you and to be strengthened and to be built up in our faith. So do your work in us as you do so well, Lord, taking the scalpel of your word, the encouraging alongside ministry of the Holy Spirit, and teaching us, changing us, transforming us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we ask these things and in his name that we receive the word today. Amen. Well, as I invite you to turn again with me, return again to Genesis chapter 45, I need to tell you that our subject matter today really is very serious. We have been looking at the model of Joseph in Genesis chapter 45 as he has met with identified himself to, and now reconciled with these brothers of his who have been so wicked in the past and so difficult. And I felt that the Lord has used this passage to encourage us as we recognize, as Joseph has, that God is sovereignly over the affairs of our lives and he is a trustworthy God and he takes even the difficult things and works them together for good in our lives. I trust you've been encouraged the last few weeks as we have thought about these matters. But I also, as I have been studying this passage and reflecting upon it, have felt that it would be premature for us to leave and move forward without dealing with this matter specifically of how Joseph dealt with these most horrific brothers of his in this matter of reconciliation. I recognize that in an audience like this, as we have gathered, that there are those among us, I have no one person in mind, I just have a quarter century of pastoral ministry to bear testimony of the reality, that there are those among us this morning who have been living with hurts caused by the people in your lives that are very deep and life-impacting. Some of you know, don't you, very much what it is to be hurt by another person so deeply and so rudely that your entire emotional framework, your mental health, your self-image and self-worth, even your desire to go on living have been altered in a negative way. You know what it is to have people in your life that were supposed to love you, that were supposed to be trustworthy, who have violated all of the boundaries of proper relationships. People who were supposed to love you have actually done hateful things to you. And you bear the burden of that even now this morning, living with 
the memories or even the reality of these broken relationships today as though it were some ever-present enemy in your life. For some of you, years have gone by, haven't they? And relationships continue to remain unmended. Like Joseph, decades even, it is possible, have gone by. I think of people that I have ministered to in the past. When I was thinking about this introduction, I pulled from my file a letter from nearly two decades ago in youth ministry, written by a young girl, a young teenager in my youth group, later given to me by her mother. I have changed the names. But this letter is just representative of one kind of hurt, of the incredible multitude of hurts that I'm sure are represented in this many people's lives today. This young girl wrote this letter to her father who was divorcing her mother. And she wrote, Dear Mr. Smith, let me start by saying it is not mom's fault that we don't come to see you anymore. You brought it all on yourself. Mom said I could write this letter to you and that I don't have to see you or talk to you. I want you to leave me alone and I don't ever want to see you again, exclamation point, and then underline three times, remember all the times you left us with Sally? Well, we wanted to see you, not that woman. You hurt me and Bubby so many times and now it's your turn. How does it feel? Just remember what I said. And she signed it, your X with a big X, daughter. That's a pretty deep hurt. I suspect that this girl is grown and married and with a family. And I suspect that those hurts are still very real. Some of you know what it is to be so emotionally devastated that every day of your life you think about it and the scars remain. You're so emotionally devastated from hurts in the past that you are today relationally challenged. You struggle, even to this day, to trust and to live out healthy relationships. And perhaps for some it has even resulted in a spiritual hardening. And your heart is seared now. And you have lost all of the tenderness that perhaps you once knew. And you don't even respond properly to your Heavenly Father. I don't know what kind of hurts are represented specifically here. I can imagine. I do know that as we look back at Genesis chapter 45, that you cannot overstate the abuse and the hurt that Joseph's brothers put on him. In the family context where he was supposed to be loved, he was hated. In the family context where he was supposed to be protected, he was abused given away to slave traders. We'll not take time to back up and remind ourselves. We have been for several weeks. If you haven't been here, you can read back. When we look at chapter 45 now, and I want to reread the first 15 verses for part of our thinking this morning, I want you to see what Joseph is doing here as he reconnects with his brothers. This is the time now, 22 years after 
he has ever seen them. They think he's dead. They are pretty sure they killed him, in essence. And here they are, and his third oldest brother, Judah, has been speaking to him, literally begging to swap out his life for the life of his youngest brother, Benjamin, who they need to return back to Canaan to their father, Jacob, or they know it will kill him. Joseph, recognizing that their hearts have turned, that there is remorse on their part, and that they have regret, and that they are sorry for their sins of the past. They don't know how to deal with it, per se. But Judah now, we'll find out in a few weeks as we look at Jacob's anti-blessing on the oldest two sons, that they have lost all moral authority to lead and represent the family. And so the third from the oldest, Judah, comes before Joseph, who you recall is now in all essence the essential leader under the new Pharaoh of all of Egypt. He has had all power delegated to him. He is the one who is clearly the one who is identified for saving Egypt, and he, is, he has a name that is known worldwide. And for seven years they have harvested and they have gathered, and now two years into the seven years of famine that Joseph had revealed through the dream of Potiphar, he now stands before his brothers, unrecognizable, the most powerful Practically speaking, the ruler of all of Egypt. And Judah says to him in verse 33 of chapter 44, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. And then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. That's that phrase that we've camped on the last couple of weeks reminding ourselves that as Joseph processed all of this, all of the pain, all of the hurt, he sees God's hand in a sovereign rule over his life, taking even these wicked occurrences and turning them into good. Verse 7, verse 6, For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. 
And I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father all about the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen. And bring my father down here quickly. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Relationship restored. Let's take a look at what's happening in Joseph's life right now. And and let's just ask ourselves, how did Joseph deal with the offensive party in his life? The first thing I want you to see in the passage is that Joseph, number one, dealt with, with his offensive brothers with a prepared heart. Number one, it was a prepared heart. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 50 for just a minute, the very last passage of this book. We will get there one of these days and um, benefit from it as well. There are still a number of good messages to come. Genesis chapter 50, looking at verse 19, verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. This is after his father dies. And they said, see, they were still worried about the repercussions of their behavior from many years before and unsure whether or not once Jacob was off the scene that then Joseph might retaliate rather than maintain reconciliation. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in place of God? And now one of the most familiar verses of all of Genesis. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid, and I will provide for you and your children. And he, look at this phrase, and he reassured them, and look at the next phrase, he spoke kindly to them. He was not duplicitous. He was not disingenuous. He had a prepared heart. On this day in chapter 45, when he reveals himself to him, to them, he comes before them with the heart attitude that is biblical, that is godlike, and that is a tremendous model to us. And not only that, it is a model of the Christ-like teaching of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look what it says in the New Testament about having a prepared heart to deal with offending parties in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4. These are somewhat familiar verses, and sometimes we learn these verses in Sunday school, and we think, oh, those are good verses to teach our little children. These are adult verses, let me tell you. These are difficult verses to live out. And can I say this? May I tell you that I understand as I'm preaching that it is very likely that because of God's grace and blessing in my own life and being raised in a a wonderful, healthy home and the blessing of God upon my life because of a father and mother who loved God and who taught us to walk in obedience that I recognize as I preach this morning that I personally have lived such a blessed life that I really have not experienced the kind of hurts and pains 
that many of you know and even live with today. The horrible, horrific, hateful things that people have done. And so I want to be very careful as I present God's word to you today that I don't come across that this is some kind of an easy concept and that this is something that you need to just flip that emotional switch and make it all right. But that these are things that are deeply ingrained and they are life-changing and they will never go away even as you walk with God and even as you bring a perspective of biblical obedience into your life that some of these things Satan will bring up before you and you will struggle with them the rest of your lives. But by God's grace, you can walk in obedience to Scripture and you can deal in a God-like, biblical, Christ-like manner with these issues. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, I want you to notice verse 31 with me because it has everything to do with the heart attitude and it has everything to do with what happens if we don't forgive. Paul commands with a directive, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. That would be wishing ill upon the people who have offended you. Not wanting their name to be elevated in a positive manner at all. That's slander. Anger and bitterness is the desire within you to hurt that person with the God-given, God-designed center of equilibrium that we are given in all of us, it speaks to the fact of creation and not evolution, that we have a system of justice built within. And when something harmful or unjust has gone on, it demands correction and there should be some kind of a penalty. And when you have been offended and when you have been hurt, then in your natural state... Justice demands retaliation and so you are angry and you are bitter and you want to do a beatdown. And you say things like, give me five minutes in a dark alley with that guy and I'll make everything right. But you're wrong. The satisfaction will only last five minutes. And the bitterness and the hatred and the anger and the slander will go on. And so Paul reminds us of something that is very difficult, and that is what he's taught in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if any man be in Christ, he is, man or woman, in Christ, you are a new creation. And the old is going, that is, the old way of thinking, the fleshly way of dominating our lives, that we be like the natural man around us, and that is, if you hit me, I hit you back harder. I will pay you back. You will never do that to me again. But Jesus comes along and he teaches us to live in a way that is unbelievable. And oh, we love that ticket to heaven that we have in Jesus' name in our purse or our pocket. But we're not always so happy to live out the teaching of Christ today. And Jesus calls us to live differently. And Paul reinforces the teaching of Christ. We won't go to Matthew and take the time. There's vast passages on how Christ taught us to turn the other cheek. Taught us to love our enemies and not hate them. What is that all about? 
And Paul gives as a directive here to get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice that is negative thinking towards that person. And it is a command. And if it is a command, then it is about us unilaterally and it has nothing to do with the offended party. And if you don't do verse 31, get rid of that. You cannot do verse 32. And until you do verse 32, you'll never really do verse 31. A little bit of circular reasoning, isn't it? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let me say a word about forgiveness and its cousin, reconciliation. Because this is a complicated matter, and this has many tentacles in our lives. I believe that the Bible teaches, in its overriding teaching, that forgiveness being as it's a command, that it is a unilateral concept. That is, it is a one-party word. And forgiveness is about my heart attitude before the Lord directed at the offending party. If God commands me to do this, then it cannot have anything to do with you. It has mostly to do with me and what my attitude is towards you. Now, reconciliation is not a unilateral word. Reconciliation is a two-party concept. Reconciliation means that there are two parties that once walked in agreement and they have now separated. In fact, they have been at war. They refuse to face one another. And they now, for reconciliation means that there has been a change of heart. There has been an acknowledgement of guilt. There has been a desire to humble themselves to admit sin, to turn and come together. Two parties, once at war, turning, coming together. That's what reconciliation means. So reality is, is that God has commanded me to have the heart attitude of forgiveness, but in reality, I could potentially still not be reconciled with an an offending party. That's a very difficult concept sometimes to live with. And sometimes it's hard to know whether or not we've really forgiven one another. And we forgive one another and we do the best we can, but we can't forget, can we? I can tell you when you know you haven't forgiven at a much lighter level, perhaps, than our, in our marriage, for example. You didn't make the bed when you got up this morning. Well, what do you mean? You left your cereal bowl out on the counter and you got this little spat going on. And so you have a division and you're kind of at each other. And you cannot come together and make up until there is a willingness with a proper heart attitude to turn, come together, and to say to one another, I was wrong. And my job is to police my behavior and my attitude. What we do as a defense mechanism regularly, isn't it, is to point out the wrong in the other person. It will help our relationships a lot if I would finally figure out that I cannot change the other person. And I have a big enough job taking care of myself. But when two parties are at war, they turn and come together and there has to be humility and Christ-likeness and admission of guilt. And then they have to say, I am sorry. You see, this is what Joseph has experienced with his brothers. If we go back to chapter 42, when he first had him over, when the first trip that they came to Canaan, you'll see there that they were talking and he overheard them. They didn't even know that he could understand their language. 
And they were saying, oh, this is all because we have sinned. They admitted their sinful behavior. Oh, if we had never done that. They regretted their sinful behavior. This is going to kill our father if this happens again. They had remorse and concern for another person. And so Joseph has understood that there has been a change of heart. That's when reconciliation can take place. And a willingness on the offended party's part to forgive the offended person. And so there's been a change of heart attitude. And Joseph, back to Genesis 45, Joseph stands before his brothers with a prepared heart. That is, he is going to forgive them and allow the relationship to rebuild. It's an attitude of the heart. The second thing I want you to see that Joseph did in dealing with this offensive party, these brothers of his who heinously offended him, not only did he approach them with a prepared heart, properly prepared heart, but I want you to notice, practically speaking, that he approached them, number two, in a private room. He kicked out the servants, he closed the doors, and then he said, we need to deal with this. You notice that Joseph has never talked about this in his life. Pharaoh's court has no idea who Joseph is. Pharaoh's court has no idea that he's there because he was heinously hurt. And his life was a total misdirection into Egypt. He has not identified or created a persona based upon the hurt in his life. That is a temptation, isn't it? When we have been wounded deeply, our lives become all about this sin that has gone on against us. And everybody in the public knows, and every time we talk to somebody, that's where we want to go with our conversation. Do you know that I've really been hurt? That guy has hurt me so bad. Those people have hurt me so bad. That church, that business partner... And Joseph is quiet about it. And when the time comes to reconcile, he has a prepared heart. And then it's a private room. And he deals with the matter with the offended people inside. It is not a public matter. A little practical insight there. Notice that number three, resulting in this time of revelation as he shows them that he is their brother, that it is painfully emotional. There are painful emotions, number three. He says, have everyone leave my presence. They were alone. And then verse 2, it says, and he wept so loudly. These kinds of things are painful, aren't they? I don't think that's just tears of joy. I think he's happy to be heading the right direction, happy to reconnect, that he's ready to see his father again. But I think that all of the, the frustration and all of the empty loneliness of the past, and all of the hurt feelings. And it says that he wept, and then later, in verse 14, it says that there was weeping. Very emotional, isn't it? To come together like this. But then fourthly, notice that Joseph grants pardon. Pardon is granted. Number four, look at verses four and five. He says, verse 3, I am Joseph. Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, then he says, I'm the brother you sold into Egypt. 
And now don't be distressed and don't be angry. Basically what he's saying is, forget it. It's okay. I grant you pardon. I forgive you. What a powerful moment. They don't deserve it. It's an unconditional pardon. It's an undeserved pardon. And it's a unilateral pardon. Basically, I'm forgiving you. He does recognize that they are turning and that they have repented by at large. Whether they have said it in their direct words yet or not, he knows that their heart attitude has certainly changed. And so pardon is granted and reconciliation can take place. Notice then number five, that as Joseph dealt with this offensive party, number five, it involved physical touch. I think that's an important part of reconciling, isn't it? We put our arms around each other. We hug. We cry together. We affirm one another. This is a totally non-sexual touch, of course. It is the affirmation that I welcome you back into my life. There's physical touch. Sixth, notice then that it all wraps up. This is verses 14 and 15. He threw his arms around his brother and he wept, physical touch, and he kissed them, physical touch, and all his brothers. He did it to Benjamin and then he said, down the line, all 11 brothers. I think that took a while. He's going down there and he's holding them. He's kissing them. I think they must have kissed him back. I think they must have cried. And then it says, Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Relationship restored. Number six, there was personal conversation as they reconnect and as they communicate again and gain an understanding of one another. That's just some simple thoughts on how Joseph dealt with the offending party. He had a prepared heart. He did it in a private room. It was painfully emotional, And he let the emotion show. Pardon was granted. There was physical touch wrapped up by restored relationship indicated by personal conversation. And that's all fine and good. But that's not what I want the message to be about today. Because this is easy. This is the easy stuff. Part A of the sermon this morning is a guy has been offended The offending party shows up. The offending party, for all practical purposes, is indicating that they're sorry for what they did and reconciliation is made. But what I want to ask this morning is, what in the world do you do with somebody who doesn't want to reconcile with you? What about the offending, hateful, hurtful party that refuses to restore relationship? This part B question is, how do we deal with an unrepentant, unreconciled, broken relationship. I think there's lessons here coming out of the life of Joseph and elsewhere in Scripture that will be good for us to consider. How do we deal with an unrepentant, unreconciled, broken relationship? I want you to realize, too, that this is in some ways a two-way street. Sometimes, most often what we're dealing with is you have been offended. And as I've been preaching and as we've been looking at God's word together, you have some thoughts about that person, that incident, that those group of people. It could be when you were a child in a moral issue. It could be a business partner. It could be a huge monetary ripoff thing that people defrauded you. It's so difficult. But I also recognize that it is possible for some of us 
that we have actually been the offending party and we have now gotten right with God and we want to reconcile with somebody who we have hurt deeply and they refuse to let us back into their lives. Remember, you cannot control the behavior of other people. This is a great tip in relationships, as I've already referenced. Stop worrying about trying to change the people around me and focus on what God is doing in my life through this occurrence today. So quickly, because there's some valuable material here, I think. How do we deal with the unrepentant, unreconciled, broken relationship? The first one, directly from chapter 45, that we don't really need to work at anymore, because I think I've said it repeatedly, And that is, as Joseph did, that we have to come to a place, don't we, where we recognize the sovereign oversight of God in my life. I have been hurt. I have been wounded. Is that what my life is all about? Or is God bigger than that? Is God above that? Is God able to take that and use that in my life in some way that I might have no idea? We had a whole message and a half, two messages about that, basically. It is interesting, isn't it? In chapter 50, where we read that Joseph says to his brothers when they came back to him after his father died, and they say, we'll be your servants. They bow down to him. Remember, he dreamed years before that they would bow down to him, and they've done it repeatedly. But he says to them, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And then it said at the end of that, do you remember? He spoke to them how? He spoke to them kindly. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, And be ye kind one to another. He understood the hard attitude, and he understood that God is in control of these things, and that there is a greater level, a higher level, on which to consider these matters. So step number one, when I deal with an unreconcilable, difficult, hurtful situation, is I have to recognize that I have limitations in what can be done here, but God is sovereign over all of this. And I will deal with it kindly. Number two is I have to reject bitterness and the sinful responses of the flesh. Number one was I recognize God's sovereignty. Number two, I reject bitterness and the sinful responses of the flesh. Will you turn to Romans 12 with me quickly? And let's look at Romans 12. And I want you to see what the flesh wants to do in these situations and what God says about it. Because with hurt comes bitterness, and with bitterness comes anger, and with anger comes the desire to retaliate. That's old school thinking. New Jesus school thinking says no. The Apostle Paul teaching on that says in chapter 12, verse 17, look what he says. Romans 12, 17 and on. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. See, that's that built-in justice system that we have. You did me dirt, I'll do you dirt. You give me the elbow, I'll give you the elbow. Do not repay evil for evil. See, we are not to think like the old way. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. That's a, a word to encourage us to get along. If it is possible, verse 18, as far as depends on you... See, you can't do anything about the other person, but as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So sometimes you just have to avoid people because that's your job. 
Because every time I go there, that person attacks me. Every time I go there, it's a beatdown. And I want to get along with them. And I have a prepared heart, and I'm ready to make reconciliation. And in my heart, I have forgiven them, unilateral forgiveness. They have not dealt with their end of the deal. But by God's grace, I have put away anger and wrath and bitterness in my new school of thinking, my Jesus school of thinking. And now, as much as is possible for me, I get along with them. But it still doesn't work. And then he says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. I don't know exactly what that means. It's a colloquial expression that somehow means you'll drive him crazy. You'll somehow, God will use it. Do not, verse 21, overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you say in your heart, yeah, right. And I'm telling you that our call is to the obedience of Scripture and the surrender of the heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that His plan can unfold in our lives. And there it is. If you have an irreconcilable, hateful relationship that you have done your part with, your job starts with acknowledging the sovereignty of God in this matter. Number two, in rejecting personal bitterness and sinful responses of the flesh, I want to pay back. Listen, you let them go into God's perfect justice system. He says, I will repay and I will make vengeance for you. And that is a perfect payback. Therefore, a back alley beatdown, a Louisville slugger in the headlights, initials carved in the leather seats of his truck. Some of you know that song, don't you? (laughs) Is not vengeance or real payback. But when God says, I'll repay them, you leave it to me. He's good for his word. And I would say, woe to that person who doesn't get right with a holy God who says, vengeance is mine and I will repay you. What a horrible thought. Your little tit-tat knocking out teeth is nothing to what God's going to do to that person. Thirdly, closely related to number two is that we must repent of our own sinful responses We won't take time to turn back there, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, he said you have to get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, slander, malice. It's got to go. So if you're in a situation where the relationship is so broken and you can't reconcile it, the one thing you can do is make sure that you are no longer sinning in response to that person because you stand accountable for your sin just like they stand accountable to you and it is very difficult to be in a Joseph-like, horrible, offensive relationship with people like that and not have sinned in your heart to the degree of hatred, to the degree that you you could kill them. It is a murderous thought. And that is sin. And God says, my people don't tick like that. That's not what we do. That's powerful. That is supernatural. It is not of the flesh. It is of the Spirit of God who lives in you, enabling you to do this. Otherwise, it is absolutely impossible. 
You cannot control, nor are you responsible for the sinful behaviors of others, but you bear full responsibility for your own behavior. And now will you turn with me quickly over to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 18. And I want to give now a a longer conclusion to this message. We're now entering the conclusion part. We have looked at how Joseph personally dealt with his brothers. How did Joseph deal with this offensive party? We have acknowledged, though, that it was a party that was willing to reconcile, and so it brought a dynamic uh, of cooperation to that situation. And we now have asked ourselves an obvious question responding from that is, okay, what about a group that will not reconcile? What about an offending party that will not reconcile? And we have... Uh, said that we must recognize God's sovereign oversight in our lives, in these relationships. We must reject bitterness, and we must repent of our own sinfulness. And the fourth and final point we see in Matthew 18, it sounds a little churchy, it doesn't sound practical, but I'm going to tell you, it's at the heart of this entire matter. It is really what this whole sermon is about. And it is in Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 21, and point number four is, you must Recall your own salvation. You have to recall your own salvation. Recognize God's sovereignty, reject bitterness, repent of sinful behavior, and recall our own salvation. Let's read the text here. It's found in the context of Jesus doing some teaching on forgiveness. And Peter has the wheels turning and he asks, Ask Jesus, when Jesus says you've got to forgive those that have offended you, Peter's kind of like, okay, Jesus, I I have a question. I've been really thinking about this, and I'm thinking you're telling us to forgive people, and so um, how many times do I forgive? Would you say like seven times? Like Jesus is going to say, wow, Peter, how magnanimous that is. What a, what a heart you have. And Jesus says, no. And we'll read it here in a second. And he basically says, this is where he says, seven times 70, forever. It's not like Peter gets a little flip notebook and starts making hash marks. And when he gets up to 490, all right, I get to hit him now. 491, kabam. Now, Jesus' point is, this is the new school, Peter. This isn't old flesh. This is new walking in the Spirit. This is new Jesus in you. It's about a lot more than just getting into heaven. Verse 21, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times. The NIV says 77 times. It's probably better, 70 times seven Jesus then does what he does so often. He spins out into a story. It's a very powerful story when we understand it. Therefore, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Basically, don't get hung up on how much of a talent it is. This also is a figure of speech that Jesus is using. Bible students tell us 
that this 10,000 talents is an unreasonable amount for anybody to have. It is actually kind of like the gross amount that a country would own, or even more than a small country would own. And so, in essence, in the story, Jesus is talking about a man with, number one, an unpayable debt. He has an unpayable debt. It is impossible. He's like saying, gabillion dollars to us. It doesn't really mean a specific amount of money. It means gabillion. This guy owes this much. And his listeners totally understood what he was talking about in the picture, the word picture he was painting. So he begins with this man with an unpayable debt, and then he moves to his master who had, number two, an understandable response. This fits the framework of justice that the listener would have understood. You take his wife, you take his children of this servant who has somehow violated his master's uh, standards so much that he owes him a gabillion dollars, and you put his wife and his kids in jail, debtor's prison, or you sell them to serve, and the rest of their lives they're going to try to pay back this debt. But number one said it was an unpayable debt. That's the point of the story. Number two, though, the understandable response, justice must be done. But then verse 26, an unreasonable request. Look what it says. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. That's a total unreasonable request. It doesn't matter if he lives a million years. He can't pay this back. It's way, way more. That's the point of what Jesus is making. An unpayable debt with a proper response, but an unreasonable request by the man. But now we end this part of the story, part A of this story, with an unbelievable result. Look what it says. The servant fell on his knees. Be patient with me. Then verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him. And here it is, number four, the unbelievable result. The master looks at him and he cancels the debt and he lets him go. The point is, it's just an incredible moment in this guy's life. Something under which he could not bear up is totally removed. And the master just made it go away. He didn't deserve it. He couldn't pay it back. And it's gone now. But notice part B of the story that he then goes and runs. Verse 28, that servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Again, we'll not get caught up in the in the exact amounts and what the equivalents are. But the idea is here, number one, in part B of the story, is that it was a very payable debt. One Bible commentary that I saw said that the ratio of difference here was 600,000 to one. That's what the, the talents and the denarii. So the idea would be, if I owed this guy over here, this guy over here owed, owed him six hundred thousand dollars and it was forgiven a debt of six hundred thousand dollars wiped out gone away and he runs over here and grabs his fifth grade buddy by the throat and says do you remember that time i gave you a buck for lunch money and you never paid me back give me my dollar back and he's choking the guy for his one dollar six hundred thousand to one so that's the extreme picture jesus is painting and it was a payable debt and he had an irrational response he grabs him and chokes him Pay back what you owe me, verse 29 then, a reasonable request. This wasn't an unreasonable request like the guy made himself to the big amount. It was unreasonable to say, forgive me and I'll pay you back. That didn't even make sense. In this situation, it's a very reasonable request. Leave me alone, give me a couple days, I'll pay you back. Okay? He'd pay him back what you owe me, he demanded. The fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him with a very reasonable response, Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But 
But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. It was ridiculous. And when the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything. And the master said, finally, number four, part B, this is an unacceptable result. And the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Here's the point. In this story, Jesus is is using a story to illustrate the condition of our sinful hearts before a holy God. We have a debt that we can't pay back to God. The Bible teaches us that we're so lost in our sin. And God is so holy and righteous, He can't look at it. And we have this unpayable debt. And it's even unreasonable to go and say, would you just forgive this debt or I can pay it back. You can't pay it back. There's nothing you can do in your own righteousness. It's the scripture Pastor Everett read earlier. And it's an unpayable, insurmountable mountain of a problem in the presence of God. And then he says, I forgive you by my grace, by no deserved favor of your own, according to the riches of Christ, I will merit your name and wed your name to Jesus by grace through your faith and this insurmountable, unpayable debt will be paid in full under the name of Jesus Christ and therefore, when you remember what I have done for you, then you need to forgive those who have offended you. The reason we don't like this and the reason that we don't live it out is because we don't think we've really sinned that bad. And we're not so sure God has really forgiven us of all that serious stuff. I have never raped anybody. I have never murdered anybody. I have never defrauded anybody out of so much money that they lost their business. I have never destroyed a family. I'll tell you something. You don't know your Bible very well and you don't know your theology very well if you think you're not as bad as that person in your sin and in your lostness. And the Bible is clear that in this insurmountable, horrendous offense of our sin in the face of a holy God, that he wiped out an unpayable debt. And compared to our sinful offensiveness in the face of a holy God, regardless of what anybody else does to me, that is a measurable offense. My offense to God is immeasurable. I know that emotionally it's difficult to process. I'm telling you that the fourth thing you have to do when you recognize that you're in an irreconcilable, difficult, broken relationship that is hateful and hurtful and has scarred you deeply is you have to go back to the foot of the cross and remind yourself of your own salvation and of what God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. And Jesus' own teaching here says, you were under a debt so bad you couldn't pay it and I paid it for you now if I will forgive you you need to forgive others or I'll treat you like that that is a powerful reality isn't it that's a powerful reality let's bow our heads shall we I think there's two different groups of people in our audience this morning 
I don't in any way mean to imply that I have answered every question of the tangled relationships or the difficult circumstances in which you may have found yourself at one point or another or even presently in your life. But today, generally speaking, I would think that it makes sense to at least consider the group of people in this audience who you realize maybe for the first time that you are a sinner and that a holy God cannot let you into heaven. You are not a born-again Christian and Jesus' story makes you realize that you are lost, you are not one of his children, you are totally comfortable with living in the flesh and paying back people with your fists. But you need to realize today, my friend, that you have an unpayable debt in the presence of a holy God. And that the only way out from under that load of guilt and sin that will cast you into hell for eternity is what Christ has done for you on the cross in taking your place as your substitute so that by God's grace, allowing Christ to make payment for your sin, you can look to Jesus today, admit your sinfulness, believe that he did this on the cross for you, and believe based upon the promises of the word of God that it is a sufficient payment and accept this as a good deal between you and God and that that alone will save your soul. Taking the work of Christ and his righteousness in trade for your sinfulness so that God says, I forgive you. And so today, there's people here that need to be saved. And by God's grace, you need to let him take all your sin away and let Jesus shed blood, wash it all clean because you have an unpayable debt. And any request in your flesh is unreasonable to a holy God. The other group of people are the believers in the Lord Christ. And you've been hurt so badly. Listen. For some of us, it's time to stop sinning. It's time to stop identifying with this pain as though it was my persona, it is who I am. It is not who you are. You are a child of God. You are in Christ. You are capable of obeying Scripture. And you can unilaterally, in a one-way decision, forgive that person and get rid of all bitterness, anger, and wrath. God has called you to it. And then, based upon the teaching of Christ and by his strength and by his grace, you can forgive that person largely for no other motive than the reality of the fact that that's what God has done for you, basically. And then begin to pray and let God bring reconciliation when the time comes. For some, it will never come. Don't let it ruin your life. So, Father, do your work in us and challenge us and change us and help us to have the courage to begin to let the Spirit of God teach us these things that we would no longer be pressed into the mold of the world, but that we would live like Jesus' people, as difficult as it may seem up front. It brings great joy in the morning. So do your work in us, I pray in Jesus' name.